0: here we are at last this is didactic mind episode 97 30 days that shook the world very warm welcome to all of my long-time listeners over on podbean very warm welcome to my long-time readers on the site thank you all for tuning in and for downloading and sharing this around as always feel free to like comment share and especially subscribe are all sorts of ways to make sure that you never miss a new upload, you can always subscribe to the podcast on Podbean itself, you can subscribe to the site, you can now subscribe to my Telegram channel, which is a great way to interact with me personally and with members of the community. <clears throat> be, for, be sure to sign up, the link is in the description box, the conversation is quite a lot of fun actually uh, on a number of topics and is especially germane these days because It gives me a way to offer rapid updates to people on the situation uh, on the ground and around the world and on my interpretation of events in kind of a quick fire, informal setting without having to go through all the tedium and effort of writing a blog post, which is actually a lot of work. And that's the genuine truth, it is hard, hard work to write blog posts. but. If you want to get involved and get more uh, interaction with me and with other people within the didactic mind community, as it were, then that's the best way to do it. And I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. We've uh, grown the Telegram channel very, very rapidly. I'm shocked, actually, at how fast it's grown. And a lot of that is due to that article that I wrote a while back about anaconda warfare, about uh, the Russian strategy in Ukraine which our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxemort, the most malevolent and terrible, picked up and commented on and was very complimentary about and I really owe him a great deal of thanks and I am very very grateful to him for that. And in that article I pointed out what kind of the Russians are doing in a tactical and a strategic sense In the military operation, in the special military operation in Ukraine. In today's podcast, I want to zoom out a bit to the macro picture around the world because the past week has seen a number of very momentous developments which have shaken the financial and economic and political establishment to their core. And it is really remarkable what has happened in just the the last few days, since, since my last podcast, episode 96, was not that long ago. It was, what, eight days ago. Now, the title of this podcast, 30 Days That Shook the World, comes from a book title called 10 Days That Shook the World, uh, about the Russian Revolution. And if you go look it up, it was written by, I, I used to... I used to have a copy of it somewhere, or my, my parents have a copy of it somewhere, but 10 days that shook the world, and if you're listening to the sound of an old typewriter, that's actually my mechanical keyboard, I love the thing. That's what I thought, it's John Reed. John Reed wrote this in 1919, and he was a pinko commie socialist, you know, the kind of guy that uh, people like me would like to offer free one-way helicopter rides um, because we don't like communists. Uh, I honestly, I mean, I am very much of the same view as Rafal Uh He's the famous Polish or infamous Polish um, freedom fighter and mercenary who, when asked, what does it feel like to kill another human being, answered, I wouldn't know, I've only ever killed communists. Well, that's kind of how I feel about it. Um, not quite so bloodthirsty, but, you know, um, pretty damn close. So, he this this book, 10 Days That Shook the World, was about the October Revolution in 1917, and this guy kind of followed the Bolshevik leaders very closely during the time of writing of the book and really lionized them a lot. Now, my intention here is not to lionize anybody, uh, but it is to provide some clarity and some perspective around events that have taken place in the last 30 days, and it has been Effectively 30 days since the beginning of the special military operation, whether you call it an invasion, a war, a special military operation, whatever, the results have been the almost complete destruction of the Ukrainian military. So I want to start by giving a brief overview, and I promise it will be brief, of the tactical and strategic situation on the ground. And I will reference a couple of documents from the Russian general staff and from Putin himself uh, about what the aims of the Russians are in this in this 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 conflict but i really want to talk about what has happened since then in economic and political terms because that is a true earthquake and it is going to define the world for years to come so looking at the tactical map what's going on all right well if you look in at ukraine right now you see three zones of combat. You see the Northern Front, um, uh, Sever, uh, Front Sever, uh, Front Vostok, and Front Yug, Front, uh, Northern Front, uh, Eastern Front, and Southern Front. All right. The two, air, the, there are two fronts where r- really heavy action is taking place right now Eastern Front and Southern Front. <laughs> In the Eastern Front, the joint force operation of the Ukrainian military, consisting of anywhere between 12 and 22 brigades, is essentially trapped, encircled, cut off without any hope of relief. And I've seen estimates of the number of troops in that area as high as 80,000. The consensus number seems to be like 60,000, but it's somewhere between 60 and 80,000. I thought at one point it was 100,000. Um, just because, you know, that, like, naively, I, I assumed a brigade is gonna be however many men it is, right? So I, on that assumption, I said, well, it's gonna be about, um, a uh, hundred thousand men. But no, it's, it's close, somewhere between 60 and 80,000 men trapped and circled in a cauldron in the east. This is the cream of the Ukrainian fighting force. That's the best they've got. And those are men that the Ukrainians, it turns out, were earmarking for a massive assault on the Lugansk and Donetsk uh, breakaway regions. We have direct documentary evidence to support this. The Russians have captured a number of documents. And by the way, before anybody complains how I'm spewing Russian propaganda, let's be very clear about something. The Russians have repeatedly proven themselves to be much more accurate in every single thing they've said than either the Ukrainians or the Western observers. Every single time the Russians have said something, the events on the ground have borne them out. Every single time. Except with respect to casualty figures, and I'll get to that shortly. Now, the, for eight years, the Ukrainians, or the Ukrainian government, under two successive presidential administrations, under Petro Poroshenko and, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, had engaged in a policy of outright persecution of the Russian-speaking peoples throughout Ukraine, and of, particularly of the Russian-speaking peoples in the Lugansk and Donetsk re- regions, which made it very clear they didn't want to be part of Ukraine anymore after the Euromaidan revolution, which we now know was a CIA-sponsored coup aimed at destabilizing Ukraine, moving it out of Russia's orbit, and establishing a foothold for NATO... In Russia's backyard effectively. So based on that information uh, and based on that background the Yukis decided that they were going to punish the Donbas breakaway republics or breakaway regions with overwhelming force and outright destruction of their people with outright conquest and they moved uh, Close to a hundred thousand troops at various times into that region and just shelled the hell out of them, persecuted them, uh, launched basically neo-national, neo-Nazi, nationalist, ultranationalist uh, groups into the region, and had them harass, persecute, execute, and torture various people uh, who posed a threat to the Ukrainian regime in Kiev. This is not a defender of freedom and democracy. It's nothing of the sort. That force. The ability of the Ukrainians to project force into that region is about to be destroyed. The Russians are systematically grinding it down, one piece at a time, destroying them piecemeal. The, Rus- the, the Ukrainians lost their ability to mount any kind of joint-coordinated, large-scale offensive in the first 48 hours of the war. That's how remarkably effective the Russians have been. They bombed the hell out of the Ukrainian command and control centers, destroyed their radar installations, destroyed their airfields, destroyed their military capacity, and then, using an encirclement strategy, basically penetrated deep behind enemy lines with almost like suicide runs of very fast, lightly armored, uh, kind of old-school tank uh, and uh, armored fighting vehicle columns, and dropped in paratroopers on Gostamel Airport in order to secure beachheads all throughout Ukraine. And they did so with almost complete surprise. Nobody saw it coming. No one, no one anticipated that they would do it. Uh, it turns out that Putin reckoned the Ukrainians were only about two weeks away from invading themselves, so he preempted it. And he forced the, the, uh, the Ukrainians to defend on Russian terms, not on their own. It was a brilliant strategy. It was an absolutely phenomenal, brilliant, brilliant strategy. And Western observers have looked at the, the battles and they've said, well, nothing's moving. What, Putin must be losing. He's not. Russia isn't losing. Because if you look at the Southern Front, uh, you know, I've dealt with the Eastern Front, look at the Southern Front, Mariupol is essentially cleansed. That's the biggest sort of city that the Ukrainians have on the Azov coast. Kherson is pacified. Nikolaev and Odessa are under bombardment. Uh, Odessa, I expect, will be taken. And I believe that the Russians will probably push through and capture the entire Ukrainian coastline so that they will completely cut off Ukraine from the sea. They've essentially blockaded Ukraine from the seaward side anyway already. The Ukrainians don't have a navy. Their air force is shut down. Their army is scattered and broken. And their commanders have no ability to join... To, to create any kind of joint operation of any sort. So the Russians are winning. Now, they claim in this um, recent press release uh, by uh, Colonel General uh, Rutskoy and another uh, medium tall general that they had, it was a couple of days ago, that the Russians have lost about four, a little under 1,400 dead and about a little under 4,000 wounded, something like that. I would generally consider those estimates to be reasonably accurate, maybe a little bit on the low side. I mean, you know, the, the real figures are probably around, let's say, 2,000 to 2,500 to um, dead to, let's say, four 4,000 to 6,000 wounded. I think that's probably accurate. Okay. I think that's probably a decent estimate and the reason I think that's a decent estimate is because if you look at the way the Russians have been fighting. They haven't been fighting with their frontline troops or their frontline equipment. Most of the tanks and vehicles that they're pushing through into Ukraine right now are older generation tanks, which they can afford to lose and they can afford to replace with newer models. So what you're seeing is not their frontline battle-hardened troops. You're seeing their second stringers. And most of the casualties, therefore, are occurring among the militias, the LDNR militias of the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics. And I think... That's where most of the real casualties are occurring. Those guys are taking heavy losses. I don't doubt that. I do not doubt that the DNR in particular is suffering very serious losses in battle, because they're the ones doing most of the fighting. The Russian Marines have definitely taken losses. I mean, they landed in Mariupol, or they lost a, a the equivalent of a, a, a very high-ranking colonel, because. Russian officers believe in leading from the front. They are expected to lead from the front. That is their culture. That is their tradition. That's what they do. Now, what is the next step? Because the Northern Front is almost completely static. Except that Chernigov is completely surrounded. Sumy is completely surrounded. Kharkov is completely surrounded and being bombed every night. Kiev is almost completely surrounded, but it looks like the Russians have deliberately left a southern avenue of escape open. Why aren't the Russians invading those cities? Well, for one thing, because urban combat is incredibly costly and difficult, and they don't want to do it. This is why all the Western observers looking at that going, well, you know, the the Russians must be losing because they can't crack the cities. This is a very stupid way of looking at it. It's a very Western-centric way of thinking, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with the Russian way of war. Until and unless Western observers, including you, my listeners, understand this, you will not comprehend why the Russians are doing what they're doing. You won't get it. Here's the truth. The Russians don't want to storm the cities, because then they'd have to rebuild them, and they're not interested in doing that because it's bloody expensive, and they don't have the finances for it. They want to keep the cities intact. What they're actually doing is pinning down the troops defending those cities so they cannot go and rescue the troops in Donbass. And if you read Colonel, uh, Colonel General Rudskoy's statement from yesterday or two days ago, whenever it was, you will find a remarkable degree of consistency between Putin's statement on the outbreak of hostilities on the 24th of February, his statement to air hostesses and stewardesses on the 5th of March, and the statement by the general staff a couple of days ago. If you look at all three sets of words, one after another, as I have done, as Alex uh, Alexander Mercurius and uh, Alex Cristoforo from the Duran have done, as Gonzalo Lira has done, if you look at these things as really informed analysts have done, you will realize that they're completely consistent across the board. So what is going on here? The Russians, in summary, are pinning down troops, destroying Open uh, in in open field combat, the, the units that they want destroyed, and then they are starving out the cities and will move into those cities if they feel like it. Now, Westerners are looking at this and saying, well, the Russians can't take the cities and they're just going to be content, they're scaling back their plans. They're not scaling back their plans. It was never their plan to invade and destroy the cities. It was never part of their strategy. What they're actually doing is cutting Ukraine into pieces. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, Maria uh, Zakharova, how do you pronounce her name? Maria Zakharova, yeah, Maria Zakharova, foreign ministry spokeswoman, said that the chance for Kiev or the chance for Ukraine to retain its sovereignty has passed. That's effectively what she said that is the clearest indication we have thus far that russia intends to partition ukraine and it's already in the works the president of the lugansk people's republic announced just i think today that once sort of the dust settles he's planning to hold a referendum for his people to on what on the subject of joining russia the outcome of that referendum is not in doubt the russians showed up, they bled for the people of the LNR, they bled for the people of the DNR, they fought and died for them, and the LNR and DNR people themselves on the ground understand this and understand where their future lies. They're going to rejoin Russia. There's like there's no doubt in my mind about that. It's the same with the people from uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in in the Georgian breakaway republics. And if you look at a map, you'll see that these two little bumps along the southern front of Russia are very, very closely linked to Russia itself. In fact, volunteers from South Ossetia are now fighting, as far as I know, or are on their way at least to the Ukrainian front and want to fight alongside the Russians. So. Russia will partition Ukraine. One way or another, that's guaranteed. Russia will take for itself the Lugansk and Donetsk regions, which will completely destroy Ukraine's economy. I mean, all of its industrial and coal production will be gone. Uh, its steel production in Mariupol will be gone. Its access to the Black Sea coast will be gone because the Russians aren't going to be content with just that. They will definitely establish a land bridge to Crimea and they will definitely take over Odessa. They will almost certainly take over Nikolaev. They will almost certainly take over the remaining, the remaining little patch of land that connects uh, Ukraine to the, the the southern southwest bit that sort of hangs below Moldova. And the Moldovans are all really excited about this because they're like, "Wow, cool! I mean, we might actually finally get a access to a seaport. Who knows? They might." So you're looking at an encircled Ukraine on both sides western ukraine is almost certainly going to be isolated and cut off and actually there's significant speculation that the poles are going to come in and invade western ukraine and take back galicia on the pretext that you know uh we want to avoid russians invading western ukraine well the, i reckon what's going to happen is putin's just going to pipe up and say yeah we immediately recognize that this is your territory go ahead and take it and the poles will be like what the hell It'll be hilarious because it'll completely preempt NATO's ability to get involved. Because the Russian will be like, yeah, it's yours. We're not going to interfere with you. We're not going to bomb it. You take over. It's your headache now. And what's going to happen is you'll end up with a landlocked Banderistan sitting in the middle of Ukraine, where Kiev may well be part of it. I don't know. Kharkov probably won't be. Chernigov probably won't be. Sumy probably won't be. But all the best bits of Ukraine will essentially be a Russian buffer state that's where we look that's that's what we're looking at what about the global situation so i mean this encirclement the, the way to look at it is there's been an encirclement in physical and military strategic terms in ukraine multiple encirclements actually and very very cleverly done but what about the global picture globally it is very clear that the sanctions that the west imposed in order to break the Russian economy have totally failed and I've got a piece coming out very soon I hope on the subject of Vladimir Putin's handling of the sanctions. I honestly believe and I'm, I'm putting this out there right now, I'm calling it as it is, I honestly believe that Putin will go down in history as the greatest statesman of the 21st century. I'm saying that outright. And I'm saying that because if you look at the way he has managed this war, it's been a 20-year, uh, kind of 20 25-year, actually, if you look at how long he's been in power, you know, realistically, 25-year campaign to fight against the West and prepare Russia for a decoupling with the Western world. Now... If you look back at putin from the way he came to power and what he's done since he got into power what has he embarked upon he's embarked upon the modernization of the russian military so he started with that instituted a bunch of reforms when he was prime minister and turned the russian military into a ruthless and highly capable fighting machine with much better morale much better pay you know it's it's largely not completely but it's moving towards a professional model it still has conscript, obviously, uh, but it is no longer a conscript-only army. It actually has a navy worth the name. I mean, it used to be the Russian navy could only float out for thirty days at a time, and then it had to come back because morale would be a problem and supplies would be a problem, and you know they just they couldn't manage long, uh, long-term deployments. But now they can. The Black Sea Fleet is very capable. The submarine fleet in particular the russians have is extremely capable their air force their russian aerospace force is actually very very good it's just very small and he's managed all of this on a budget of about 50 billion u.s dollars that is 120th if you add up everything it's about 120th of what the u.s spends because the u.s has an official military budget like 800 billion dollars and then if you actually add up all the earmarks and appropriations and all the black money that goes into uh, maintaining America's overseas empire, it really comes to about a trillion dollars. Now, f- what does America get for that trillion dollars? Well, honestly, not very much. The American military is a paper tiger soaked in battery acid for all that it's capable of actually winning wars. We saw that last year when, during the utterly shambolic retreat from Afghanistan. But the Russians... On the other hand, have a military that actually works and they're showing it off right now. So if you look at what Russia's doing and you look at how Putin has planned all this, you know, he spent the last 20 years essentially planning for this confrontation with the West. Now he didn't, I don't believe he started out wanting a confrontation. I don't believe he actually wanted to be in a situation where Russia would fight the West. I think he initially viewed Russia's future as Western in orientation. And that's always been Russia's attitude for like 300 years. I mean, ever since the days of Peter the Great, there's a reason why Peter the Great built his capital on the Baltic Sea coast, uh, St. Petersburg. Exists there because Peter the Great wanted a European-type capital facing Europe, getting involved with European affairs, and... He modeled it very consciously on the great European cities. And as a result, it is a very European city itself. I've been there twice. It is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, if you walk down Nevsky Prospekt, it is just a a stunning, stunning place, particularly in summer. It's just one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And I can't recommend it highly enough. It is an absolutely amazing place. I hope to go back someday. I really do. I love uh, St. Petersburg. I love Moscow, too. Uh, but St. Petersburg is genuinely one of the most staggeringly beautiful places you'll ever be. So, Russia has been for many centuries, for a substantial part of its existence, I would say, a European power. And initially Putin wanted to be, to continue that tradition. He, he, want, he has referred to Europe and America as Russia's partners in the West, all throughout the long, long tenure of his rule. He's done that. He said very clearly Russia, Russia's future is with the Western powers. I mean, about 111 million out of Russia's 140, 48 million odd people live in the sort of Western facing third of Russia. That's the truth. I mean, it is a, it is a Western oriented country. But in the last 10 years, that has changed dramatically. And it really started with the speech that Putin made in 2007 when he confronted the West for his massive failings in Iraq. And, you know, in 2003, Russia refused to sign off on uh, the idea of invading Iraq because it was like, well, there are no weapons of mass destruction there. You haven't convinced us. He re- Putin refused to get involved with that. He said that we're not going to support this at all. He joined France and Germany in refusing... And was forever vilified as a a pariah for doing it. Because unlike France and Germany, you know, the rulers there would change over time. But in Russia, of course, it was just Putin. He stayed. So it was easy for the US to get round to bending France and Germany to its will, but not Russia. So Putin could see the writing on the wall. I mean, with hindsight, it's very obvious. Putin is not a stupid man. He's He is extremely smart. He is also... Very cold, calculating, and dangerous. I mean, he's a genuinely a very dangerous man. People call him a thug, and he is, but he's much more than that. He's a, an extremely capable, calculating thug. Which means that he is, um, he's kind of like the godfather, you know, in, in the Scorsese films, where the Mario, Mario Puzo books, uh, he's that kind of really Amazing strategic mastermind. He really thinks in terms of long-term strategy. He really does. I mean, if you look at the way he acts, he, he looks 10, 20, 30, 50 years in the future and tries to predict where things are going. And he, he acts accordingly. He could understand even back then that the West was going in a direction that Russia would not want to follow, you know, in a, in a direction of green energy, and social justice stupidity, and cultural decline. He could see it even back then, and he wanted no part of that. And he set out very consciously to separate and decouple from the West. But he didn't expect it, he didn't really want it, I think, because being Russian, and very Russian at that, he wanted to follow the model of his predecessors. He wanted to be a Western-oriented power. But that the West wouldn't let that happen. So in 2014, when the Ukraine revolution happened, the Euromaidan happened, and the West blatantly corrupted uh, a country sitting on Russia's border in its backyard, the very same route that the Nazis took to invade Russia in World War II during Operation Barbarossa, Putin couldn't stand by. He offered uh, the Crimea... Essentially, a chance to join Russia, and they took it with both hands. And on March eighteenth, twenty twenty-two, so twenty fourteen, excuse me, March eighteenth, twenty fourteen, Russian troops moved in and just outright annexed the peninsula. So it, it was a bloodless, essentially, coup where Russia took over what was actually historically its own territory to begin with. Right? Putin has said this repeatedly, and you have to read his speeches and understand what he's saying in order to understand the way what he's doing. Putin said this repeatedly, Ukraine as a construct, as a territorial construct, is a consequence of the Soviet Union. Stalin actually kind of created Ukraine as we understand it today, as did uh, Khrushchev. Now, he's not saying that Ukrainism, Ukrainian identity, started with the Soviet Union. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. That's not what he said. He said that Ukraine's borders started with the Soviet Union and they've caused endless problems ever since and he's right. Crimea was never part of Ukraine, it was always part of Russia. Technically it was actually part of a Crimean Khanate when and then it was, you know, given to Russia, Russia took it over, but it's never been part of any construct called Ukraine. You will not find one single treaty that says it's part of Ukraine. In the process the western countries sanctioned the hell out of Russia and that was when Putin saw the writing on the wall and said, we need to harden ourselves against sanctions. And that started off a long process of decoupling where Putin understood that the West could no longer be relied upon as a partner. That is when he began to lay the seeds or sow the seeds of what would eventually become the current economic encirclement that we find ourselves in right now. He began to offer European uh countries cheap Russian gas, which was great, because he could see European countries were falling for this whole stupid, you know, green agenda. They didn't know how to get there, but they needed to fill their energy requirements somehow while they were getting there. So he offered them cheap Russian gas, which was easy, because pipeline gas is the cheapest kind. It's easy to transport. It's easy to move. Uh, It's easy to sell. Anyone who thinks that uh, Germany and France right now can fill their, their, their gas needs using... LNG doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. I I mean, I, I can't be more blunt than that. If you think that LNG can easily substitute pipeline gas, you're smoking weed, like really damn strong weed, because you don't know how this market works. Pipeline gas is by far the cheapest. If you want to liquefy natural gas, you have to freeze the stuff. You basically have to really, you know, you have to gather a whole lot of it in one place and you have to lower the temperature to the point where it becomes a liquid then you have to store it then and it has to be stored in a very very careful way because that stuff is volatile um you have to transport it very very carefully uh when it gets to wherever it's going it has to be regasified in a regasification facility it, it, you know it, it, essentially there has to be a blast radius around it of like 2 miles where you, there's nothing there because if an lng container ship god help us goes off you know if it explodes it won't just explode. It'll vaporize everything around it for a radius of roughly two miles. And anything and everything in that area will just be gone. Okay. If you go look up historical LNG accidents, there's one particularly bad one, which uh, just like, it's, it's astonishing how bad it was. Um, anyone who thinks that you can substitute pipeline gas with LNG, again, has no clue how these markets work. LNG is way more expensive than pipeline gas. Up to 10 times more expensive, depending on season and demand. And all of it has to do with the infrastructure required, the specialized handling required, the specialized movement of goods required. There is no easy way to get LNG from, let's say, Qatar up to Europe. It just, you can't do it. All right. It's, it's just that simple. So there is, you know, the, the, the European countries quite happily became dependent upon Russian natural gas and Russia tried to be a reliable partner to them. It's always maintained, tried to maintain good relations with Europe, it's always tried to deliver its commodity contracts and obligations on time, it's always paid its gas transit fees to Ukraine, which amounted to like 1.4 billion dollars of revenue to an extremely corrupt and incompetent Ukrainian government, several of them in fact, and the Ukrainians have always depended on that revenue to keep their government running because god knows they're feckless and useless at doing anything else they can't they can't run a country worth a damn i mean it's not a knock against ukrainians yeah you know, i feel very sorry for them they're going through this it's horrible but these are just the facts i mean the ukrainians haven't had a decent government in well pretty much 20 years it's like more than that actually 30 years since the fall of the soviet union it, you know russia isn't to blame for that ukrainians at some level kind of have to take responsibility for this And America's government really has to take responsibility for it because a lot of the instability is due to America. So, Russia created a lot of dependence in Europe through its energy sales to Europe itself. At the same time, it began to harden itself against the financial impact of sanctions because it saw in 2014 when a number of Russian, a few Russian banks, not many, were sanctioned it saw that there was a serious impact on its own economy where you know visa mastercard essentially stopped uh, allowing payments through their network and that was a huge problem so they came up with their own internal payments network called mir running off of their own national payment system and actually visa and mastercard since then have simply uh run their payments on that network taken all the transactions collapsed them down into one or two nodes and then run them on their own global network after processing all those all those transactions so Russia can disconnect from the main the major payments network without too many problems that's exactly what's happened they've now integrated those payments networks with China the China's Union pay Sberbank which is one of the sanctioned banks uh, now runs its cards off of China's Union pay so anywhere that Union pay is accepted Sberbank cards are accepted, and union pay is accepted now around the world, including in the UK and the US. So there's no way to lock out Russians anymore. The Russians have seen that roughly half of their foreign reserves, $330 billion worth thereabouts, have been frozen by Western banks and companies. And here's the interesting part. Those Western banks and companies that hold those Russian funds can't do anything with them. The Russians are fully able to pay off their debt because they only operate on a debt-to-GDP ratio of about 25%. They're completely solvent. I mean, they have no problem whatsoever servicing their debt. And if you want to look at a true measure of how Russia is doing in the war between it and Ukraine, don't pay attention to what the prostitutes have to say. All of them deserve hanging anyway, so don't bother with them. Don't bother with what the establishment class in Washington or London or anyone else has to say because they don't have a clue. Look at what the investment classes are saying. Look at what the investment newsletters are saying. And I'm taking this directly from, uh, an interesting episode of the Duran where they had, um, a lawyer on basically. And it's, um, and I've got the episode here actually. Uh, Uh, what's his name? Uh, James Barnes, I think, uh, was, uh, Robert Barnes, that's it, was on. And he was talking about this exact same thing. And he's absolutely right about it, where he says, if you want to know how the Russian sanctions or the sanctions against Russia are going, just look at what the investment houses are saying. The investors are getting their money from Russian bond payments because they want those bond payments. And if they don't get them, there's going to be hell to pay. Not for the Russians, who are good for the money, they are perfectly capable of providing it, but for the investors. You know that old adage about how if you owe the bank 10 grand and you don't pay, you have a problem? And if you owe the bank 10,000 grand or 10 million, the bank has the problem? I mean, obviously, you have to scale the numbers up these days because, you know, if if you owe the bank... uh, ten thousand dollars and you default that's really it's your problem but if you owe the bank ten billion dollars and you default then the bank really has a problem that's exactly the case with Russian debt people are holding Russian debt because interest rates on Russian debt are you know north of 10% in a year in a world star for yield that's an amazing deal on a country that has a track record of being able to pay its debt doesn't have a lot of debt to worry about in the first place actually produces stuff I mean, really, it, it is an incredibly energy-rich country, resource-rich country with lots and lots to offer. And is it's good for the money. It doesn't have a problem paying off that money. It's just, you know, all that it offers is liquidity. It doesn't need the money necessarily. It, just, it needs liquid money now rather than money paid on forward contracts, you know, some years in advance or some years in, in the future. It's uh, It's just a matter of liquidity for them. It's not a matter of life or death if they don't get that, those um, bond investments, they're not going to go bankrupt. They don't have a problem with it. It's not like the USA, which depends completely on people buying its treasury bonds in order to sustain its way of life. If you look at what the investment houses are saying, they're admitting very quietly that the Russian sanctions have totally failed. Now, how does this add up to a global encirclement? We'll come back to this issue of treasury bonds that I just mentioned. Look at the basis of American strength. It comes from the petrodollar. Where does the petrodollar come from? It comes from an old deal between the Americans and the Saudis, like back in the 1970s, essentially. Back then, uh, the U.S. and the Saudis struck a deal that essentially said, Saudi Arabia will sell America oil. In return, America will pay in dollars, and those dollars will be reinvested in... US Treasury bonds. Which means that because Saudi Arabia and America were each other's kind of biggest trade partners, uh, well, Saudi the Saudis were selling their oil primarily to Americans, I should say they weren't the biggest trade partners, I don't have the statistics on it. But because of that relationship, Saudi Arabia was then able to begin earmarking all of its oil contracts in dollars which meant that the United States had a massive and i mean massive inflow of dollars this was after the failure of the bretton woods system the bretton woods system for those who don't know essentially replaced the old gold standard where before world war 1 effectively uh everybody indexed their currencies pegged it to the price of gold and you had to hold actual physical gold in bank vaults where you know if you to to move foreign exchange balances around You'd move gold from one bank vault to another bank vault. You'd like, like literally, if trade happened between Sweden and Finland, you know, the Swedish bank account would move gold bars to the Finnish bank account, and there was no actual physical shipping of gold. It was just like all this gold was sitting in a bank vault in London, pretty much, and the gold would move from one cage to another cage. That's it. That's 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 exactly how it kind of moved and went. But gold pegging pegging your currency to the price of an asset has uh, has generally an inherently deflationary effect. Uh, if the asset itself is rare and difficult to find. So because gold is relatively limited in supply, if you overspend, you really have to cut back your spending a lot, and that has an inherently deflationary effect, which all governments hate. So after World War II, the Bretton Woods system was agreed upon whereby instead of gold being the central reserve asset, everyone would peg their currencies to the dollar, and the dollar would be pegged to the price of gold. Now... This allowed for a lot more monetary freedom, but it also gave the U.S. tremendous financial power, which you know it deserved because it was the world's largest economy at the time. But after the failure of Bretton Woods in 1971, I think it was, where Nixon essentially took the U.S. off the gold standard and says we're we're going to allow the dollar to freely float. Other currencies were still pegged to the dollar. The dollar wasn't pegged to anything underneath, but now. In order to justify the dollar's preeminence, it needed to be the currency of choice for something, something real, something tangible. That something tangible was oil. And thus the petrodollar was born, where all countries had to transact for oil in dollars. And that led to a massive inflow of, uh, well, it led to a massive outflow of treasury bonds to, you know, uh, bond coupons to those countries and a massive inflow of funds into the United States which allowed the United States to keep its interest rates artificially low for many 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 years. We are now coming to the end of that period. Because the Saudis have just announced that well the Saudis apparently they're not even taking Biden's calls. I mean the fake president his brains are as scrambled as the oatmeal that he eats in the morning. As far as I can tell he's he's completely lost it. He has no you know we know he's a meat puppet. I mean that's that's very obvious. He's but he is he There's nothing there. I mean, he's just a, a shambolic walking corpse, effectively. But he is being given instructions by people who have completely lost the plot, who have no connection to reality whatsoever, zero understanding of economics, and even less understanding of history. And that's why we're in the situation we're in right now. The Saudis aren't even taking his calls, apparently. Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't like the guy. Okay, fine. I mean... He has run a quite disastrous war against the Houthis in Yemen for the last eight years, seven years, thereabouts. The, the Houthis, by the way, for my American listeners, they just bombed a, an oil facility in Jeddah, uh, along the Arabian coast on the, on the Red Sea side. And it's very difficult to put out. Seriously. They bombed an oil facility. Um, that rebellion hasn't gone away. And the, the Saudi, um, the Saudi attempt to suppress it has failed completely. But he's still a very, very smart man and he understands that you know, Saudi Arabia needs to modernize and face the future and reduce its dependence on oil imports. He has now said he's willing to consider marking oil contracts in yuan instead of dollars. The Chinese are now willing to buy as much Russian gas and oil as they're willing to supply. The Indians are now saying that they're willing to buy Russian oil and gas at a discount, which of course Moscow is happy to give them, and they're willing to pay for it in rupees. The Russians have hammered home the fact that the um, the West has, you know, confiscated all of their reserves. And the, Lavrov keeps, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, keeps hammering this home in every speech these days. He's like, you can't trust the West, the, Rus- the West is not a reliable partner, look at what they did to our reserves. And a whole bunch of people around the world are looking at each other going, holy shit, this is actually really scary. If we piss off somebody in Washington DC, he's going to freeze our accounts. So some bank is going to say, well, you can't access your money. And there's no faster way to trigger a flight of capital than by telling investors, particularly big global investors, that we're going to take your money. And because we took that guy's money, stay, you know, st- stand in line keep uh stick to your stay in your lane otherwise we're going to do the same thing to you best way imaginable to trigger a flight of capital and that's exactly what's happening right now the russians have committed an economic encirclement of the west it's brilliant it's absolutely staggering what putin has done and this is why i think he's going to be remembered as the greatest statesman of the 21st century he has comprehensively outfoxed the west in every single area of engagement every single one. When it comes to energy, Russia produces energy, it's got one third of the world's energy reserves. It's sending that energy to Europe, which desperately depends on it. 49% to 51% of Germany's gas needs come from Russia. 24 to 25% of France's come from Russia. The border countries along the, you know, the, the ex-Soviet Union countries along Russia's border or slightly west of that, Bulgaria, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, Estonia, various other countries, they depend on Russian gas for between 90 and 100 percent of their gas needs. If Russia doesn't want to supply them with gas, all it has to do is turn off the taps. And by demanding that they unfriendly countries now pay in rubles in one single swift stroke, The Neo-Tsar essentially defanged their sanctions. Because what happens when you have to pay in rubles? Well, there's only one country anywhere in the world that has rubles in any meaningful amount, and that's Russia. Because obviously it's their currency, like, duh. So, in order to get rubles, what are they gonna do? Either they have to go to the Bank of Russia, you know, Central Bank of Russia, cap in hand, and like, beg for rubles and pay in their own currency to give them rubles. Or they have to unfreeze Russian assets, give them back and say, okay, in exchange for these, you know, we'll, we'll let you, we'll basically let you buy the, give these back and you give us rubles instead. And then they have to pay in rubles for Russian gas. If they don't pay, they don't get gas. And that means that Europe's economy comes screeching to a halt. I mean, not just screech, like imagine essentially, um, uh, imagine essentially, uh, Jeez, that's just, that's just gross. Sorry, I've, where I live, I've got like homosexual couples across the, the, the thing, the, the way from me, and it's just, it's disgusting. Um, that's all I can tell you. Uh, anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, imagine basically slamming into a wall at about 200 miles an hour. That's pretty much what you're looking at. Like, imagine taking a Mercedes-Benz on the Autobahn that can hit 200 miles an hour and smashing it into a concrete block. That's what's going to happen to Germany's economy because their industry can't cope without that. Their civilization can't cope without that Russian gas. They're shit out of luck and they put themselves in this position. Now Europe is making all these great noises about, well, we're gonna reduce our dependence on Russian gas by one third before the end of 2022 and we're going to make sure that renewable energy removes all need for Russian gas. And anybody who actually understands anything about energy markets is at them laughing. I mean, I actually understand a little about a little bit about this stuff because you know, very early on in my misbegotten career, my totally failed and hopeless career, my my wreck of a career, if you will, I actually used to be involved in the energy industry way back in the beginning. You know, back in the heady days of two thousand seven, two thousand eight when the energy markets were going nuts. I was involved in this stuff, so I know something about how energy markets work. You do not just adjust your energy mix in the space of a year. It just It doesn't happen, especially not when you're talking about LNG. Again, go back to what I said earlier. LNG is difficult to transport and regasify and use. It's not cheap. It's up to 10 times more expensive. And when the cost of pipeline gas on the spot market is like $14, $15 per mm BTU, and it's actually a hell of a lot more now. Um, I haven't, I have the statistics here somewhere. Um, it's, it's a shit ton more than that at this point. If you actually look at the, uh, if you actually look at the spot market for Russian gas, or sorry, of, of gas in general, my bad. Um, it is at some absurd level right now. I mean, it's, it's enormous. It's like, yeah, I think it's like 40 bucks or something. It's spiked up massively from where it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, it, is, it is at nosebleed levels at the moment. I've never seen gas prices this high. I, I don't think anybody has, really. This level of gas price is not something that happens easily. That makes Russia the dominant power in Europe right now. It's a brilliant strategy. The Russians... Are demanding unfriendly nations pay them in rubles. The Chinese have the manufacturing capability so they're looking to Russia for oil and natural gas to keep their manufacturing going. And the United States which is one of the world's top exporters of LNG cannot fill the need for LNG. The Europeans are saying we'll replace it with LNG. How? How are you gonna do that? If you look at the actual ability to ship LNG most of the people who do the shipping are like yeah we're fully booked all through the end of the year i mean we don't have spare capacity if you look at what it takes to build an lng container ship it's really difficult it takes time it takes effort it's expensive if you look at what it takes to build a regas facility it is really hard to do you can't just build them anywhere you want you then have to create the network of pipelines to distribute the gas from the regas facility back into the main gas distribution network. Not gonna happen. It's just, it's, it's just not. I mean, why these idiots say these things, I don't know. But most of them, obviously, I mean, you know, being European politicians, they haven't done a lick of work in their actual lives. They're completely clueless about how the actual world works. They just make shit up on the spot. It's ridiculous. If I did that in a corporate environment, I'd be fired. I mean, I've, I've made shit up. In a relatively safe corporate environment and had my balls handed to me in the process and rightly so because I was making stuff up that I couldn't back. These politicians are playing, are gambling with the lives of their citizens, making stuff up that they cannot deliver on, cannot be done, physically cannot be done. And they're getting away with it. This is the kind of stupidity and recklessness and arrogance that destroys civilizations. And the Neo-Tsar has seen that, and he has acted upon it. So now you have a very large collection of nations around the world, who make up the, the, the vast majority, actually, of the world's population, looking at the West and realizing very quickly, number one, the West cannot be relied upon. It is not a faithful partner. Number two, the West doesn't know what the hell it's doing. It's led by morons. An incompetence of the worst kind. Number three, the West is headed for collapse. And number four, the West cannot be trusted to to keep a safe hold of people's money. The Swiss did something so unbelievably stupid when they took sides in this conflict. I mean, the Swiss could have stayed neutral, preserved their reputation, preserved their ability to operate as an independent, wealthy country within Europe. They took sides they sanctioned russia they froze russian assets all to virtue signal guess what's going to happen money is going to flee switzerland and it's going to go to offshore uh, bank accounts in less dangerous places like singapore like the cayman islands like other places where you aren't afraid that the government's just going to shut down your accounts because they have more to lose than you do if they do that the West is caught between the jaws of a gin trap and it doesn't even have the good sense to recognize it. And this is the, 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 the source of Vladimir Putin's genius. And it really is genius. I mean, I'm, lo- I'm looking at what he's done and I'm just sitting here applauding because what he's done is so brilliant. He has, in one stroke, pivoted Russia away from the West towards Eurasia. It's now the Eurasian power. Because Russia actually produces stuff, energy, you know, coal, gas, diamonds, um, uh, oil, not the best kind of oil. I mean, it's heavy, sour, crude, which means it has a higher degree of sulfur than, let's say, Brent Light Sweet or West Texas Intermediate, which is low sulfur and therefore easier to refine. But it's good oil anyway. I mean, you can still use it. Because it actually produces stuff, the Russian ruble is now the de facto currency of the energy industry. Moreover, during Putin's administration, he has actually reduced the total share of Russian energy as percentage of the economy to the point where it's below 15% now. That's confirmed by Rostab. In the previous year, it was like, I think it was less than 20%, and it's going to go below 15% in the coming years. So, Russia cannot be harmed by crashes in energy prices anymore. Its break-even price is now below $40 a barrel, which is below what the United States can inflict upon Russia by restarting shale oil production, which it won't do even if it could because it's got an incompetent in charge, led around by the nose, by a bunch of deep state swamp creatures who have no idea how energy markets work. It's genius. What Putin has done is genius. And we are now looking at a fundamental reshaping of the world order. That's why I said 30 days that shook the world. These last 30 days have proven five, maybe seven different things. First, that Russia's military has the ability to fight in a real war. Russia has demonstrated all of its capabilities with its Kinjal and Iskander hypersonic missiles, which cannot be defended against. Don't for one moment think that NATO wasn't paying attention when the Kinjals hit Western Ukraine, and blew the hell out of a, a deep underground ammunition bunker. Don't think that wasn't on their minds, because those Kinzhal missiles can be fired off of, over neutral territory in the Black Sea by a MiG-31K, and they have enough range to smash into London, and you can't stop them. Number two, the Russians demonstrated a level of strategic capability and operational efficiency in Ukraine which the West wasn't anticipating. Nobody thought the Russian military could fight this well, and they're fighting with their second stringers. You haven't seen the best of their troops and the best of their equipment yet. Number three, the Russian economy is largely, almost completely impervious to sanctions. Sanctions don't work. Sanctions are an incredibly stupid way of economic warfare. They only work against highly leveraged, highly vulnerable countries, and Russia is neither of those things. Number four, Russia's future lies with the rest of the developing world and is quite happily doing that. And number five, Russia has essentially destroyed the basis of the petrodollar. Now, the petrodollar is over. It's gone. Which means that the U.S. economy, which is totally dependent upon the petrodollar for its existence, is going to crater. Now, it's not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen in the next like one month. I don't think we're going to see a credit crisis like that. But there will come a point when Russian and Chinese joint influence will get to the point where the U.S. can't resist it anymore. Number six, the Chinese are paying very close attention and they now understand that the United States will not be able to stop them from retaking Taiwan. Now, I don't care about the Taiwan conflict because I have no interest in it. It's like Literally, if, if if China invades Taiwan tomorrow, I'd be like, okay, fine, whatever, you know. Okay, let them have it. I just... I. I'm not being callous here, I just don't care. I literally, I don't have a dog in that fight. But number seven, when that happens, the entire American empire comes crashing down. Empires don't collapse um, overnight. But when they do collapse, it seems incredibly sudden. The process of an imperial collapse actually takes decades, if not centuries. In America's case, it's taken about two decades we are now at the point of watching the american empire collapse so just like the russian empire collapsed in 1917 all of a sudden but the roots of that collapse were planted You know, the seeds of it were planted decades before we are now watching in real time the collapse of the american empire it's a very very scary time but it's also one filled with opportunity and promise and it's worth remembering this As scary as these times are, as uncertain as they are, there is tremendous economic and political opportunity. So don't for one moment think that this isn't part of some greater plan. It is. What you're seeing in the physical world is a manifestation of what's going on in the spiritual realm. There is a war being fought in the spirit realm, and we are seeing the outright outward results of it. It's going to be a damned interesting time to come. So, that's it from me. Uh, we're out of time. I hope you found this useful. I hope you found it interesting. Uh, as always, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And be sure to tell me what you think, especially if you join my Telegram channel. And I will see you on the next one. We're getting very close to a full century of episodes, actually. So, this has been Didactic Mind, episode 97, 30 Days That Shook the World. And I am Didact, signing off.